We probably all are more familiar with some of these summaries of what's important to people than we would ever realize. Let me give you a little test and see how many of these you know. There are things like uh, the advertisement that say, after work, now it's Miller time. That says something about what's important. What do you do with the first free hours of the day that you have? Now, let me see if you can repeat, if, if you can complete the rest of these. Just to illustrate to you, you've been listening to some of the worldviews around us. If you see a flashy television ad for the army, they're going to sing, be what? Hey, you're right on. And now if it's the Marines, they're going to say, all we need is a few what? Good man, you're right on, okay? Weekends were made for... Hey, there you got a lot more time. Miller after work, Michelob all weekend long. All right? Here's another one. Give me a light. Oh, no! Uh... Is this a Christian school? Yeah, all right. Somebody says, less filling, and the answer is... Yep. At our church in Idaho, that I, where I was a pastor for the last 10 years, we had, a, uh, we had each winter when we couldn't all get in one place, we'd break up into homes and have potluck dinners in the homes, about 10 or 12 people. And, and as dinner was finishing one night, one of the fellows uh, there looked at the hostess and said, Oh, this tastes great. And three guys simultaneously said, Less filling. It's really getting into us, isn't it? All right, let's see if you watch game shows. Once you buy a prize... It's yours to keep. You're right on. Bartles and James says, we thank you for your support. Honda, we make it. You're listening. You see, we live in a world that has ways of telling us in the, the quick and easy version, a solution for everything, every problem. We have fast food, uh, we have drive-up tellers, and now we've improved on that. We have 24-hour automatic teller machines. You can do your banking anytime that you want to. Uh, we have a pill for everything. You can go get your glasses made in one hour and have your film developed next door while you're, while you're waiting. Uh, we've gotten to the point that we even talk in terms of speed being of the essence when we don't necessarily mean it. I mean, this has permeated our society. We want a quick everything. We want it as easy as possible. I saw a sign in a, in a uh, department store, in the jewelry department. I couldn't believe this. It really honestly said, right above the jewelry department, ears pierced while you wait. Now tell me what the alternatives are. You know, uh, in by nine, out by five, uh, you know, pick them up after work. Now, all that is just to have a little fun to point out that there are all, sort of, all sorts of voices shouting to us in our world about what's important. And we've got to figure out how to sort through those voices that are telling us that so many things are important. But the good news is that somebody's already done the research for us. And I want to suggest that all that we need to do is study the research and make the applications for our lives. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, would you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes for a moment? And I'd like us to draw some wisdom from experience that is far beyond the experiences that either you or I have had. 
Now, when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, it's one of those books that doesn't get a lot of our attention. It's usually, when quoted, misquoted out of context. But it's an interesting book. The Hebrew title is real catchy. It's Kaholoth, something like that, which means in Hebrew, preacher. The English title Ecclesiastes is based on a, a Greek equivalent of that title in the Septuagint. But the reason for the title Koholoth is that the preacher is how the author refers to himself in the book. Maybe for us, philosopher might be a better word. He is the man who has evaluated philosophies in his world and drawn some conclusions. Now, we don't know a lot about when this book was written. There's nothing in the book or in history that, that pinpoints a certain date. Uh, dates like the dates of any book that doesn't nail down for itself by referencing it to a king or a, a, a war or something like that. The dates vary tremendously everywhere from the time of Solomon to uh, clear up after the exile. But because of the nature of the book and, and the way it's composed, the date is basically irrelevant, except that I would like to put it in Solomon's lifetime because... I believe the evidence is pretty compelling that Solomon wrote it. He has traditionally been regarded as the author. There have been some people who follow the lead of Martin Luther after the Reformation who have felt that it was someone uh, who wrote the book later and used Solomon as its main character. But that gets kind of difficult to make it, to make it fit because chapter 1 verse 1 says, The words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know very many people who were the sons of David that were the king in Jerusalem. So it's got to be Solomon if we're going to take that chapter 1, verse 1 in its literal sense. Now, as to the contents of this book, it's a fascinating little book. Some of you, I know, have just been studying Ecclesiastes or are about to. There are no two commentaries I've found that will outline the book exactly the same way, so I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and give you yet another outline this morning. But you'll get the gist of what this book is all about. Basically, the book is a summary of Solomon's investigation into several lines of thought or several kinds of reasoning or several philosophies of life that he had found in his world. In each case, he moves from one idea to the next without finding complete satisfaction in any one thing. Now, there are little gems of common sense all through this book. He will investigate one area of thinking, one line of thinking, and he'll say, this is pretty good, and it's, and it's better to do this than this. And there's some good common sense there, but when it comes down to finding real meaning in life and what is most important, you have to read all the way to chapter 12, or at least the middle of chapter 11, to start to get the real answers. Now, he states his, his problem at the very beginning. Verse 2 says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity means emptiness. Uh, it's used to describe a vapor. Go out on a cold night, you exhale, you see the, the breath, the, you see your breath in the air as the vapor forms. Try to catch it. That's the idea of vanity. It just, when you try to grab it, it's, it's gone. You go for the gusto and you discover that it's not there. I figured I'll use beer terminology. You seem to be really into that, uh, <laughs> understanding it. Now, here's the real question that Solomon is asking. Verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? 
Why are we here? Why would you put yourself through these years, this hard work to get this education, to get a job, to do what? What's the purpose? A key phrase here is the phrase under the sun. We've already talked about vanity. He uses that word a lot. The phrase under the sun means from a strictly human viewpoint. If you're under the sun, if you're looking at it from man's perspective, what's the reason? Why do all these things? What are you really going to accomplish in your life? Now the second thing after he states his problem is that he starts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Now a study of Solomon's life is, is bizarre. Solomon did and was able to do things you and I will never dream of. At least I hope many of them we won't dream of. I wouldn't want to try to cope with 700 wives. My gosh. One a day for two years and you could then start over seeing them again for the second time. Um, I don't know if it worked out that way or not. There's things that he did that you and I should never do. He investigated it all. And in the spirit of Romans 8.28, that God causes his foolish investigation into these things to work out for good. We have here the embodiment of his research into all of these philosophies in the world around us. Now, here's what he investigated. And I'll, I'll suggest my outline of the book to you. First of all, he investigated wisdom and knowledge. Now, Solomon was wiser than any man. Now, that doesn't mean that he always made the most godly choices. But in the realm of what I would call practical sense, he had incredible wisdom to govern, to think, to write, uh, to collect all those proverbs. Just try sometime writing a proverb. Try to get into one sentence a real nugget of truth. It's a real skill. If you could write two or three in your lifetime that really would stick, you'd be doing well. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of proverbs. He wrote songs. He was great at building. He, he was a wise man in many very practical areas. But in his investigation of things, he made some foolish spiritual choices. The good news is he came to the right conclusion at the end. But first of all, he investigated the idea of, of human wisdom and knowledge in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. You know, this is the attitude that says, uh, scientific research shows. You know, as soon as you hear that, you're immediately supposed to accept that as absolute truth, right? It's a lot of where our world lives. Or, we're going to appoint a committee to study... And then after they release their findings, you're supposed to act on it. That's human knowledge, human wisdom. And look at his conclusion, verse 17 of chapter 1. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this is also striving after wind. The idea of vanity, you can't catch the wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. The more you know, the more you're going to be responsible for. And the, the more responsibility you have and the more you know about things, the more demands are going to be made on your life. And he says, I found grief there. If you don't think that's true, just get on an elite list of people who have keys to a certain thing. 
You'll find out that that's too much knowledge. It'll become grief to you. Everybody will want to, to know something. If you have the authority to do something, somebody will want you to do it for them. So he says, the more I knew, the more I learned. Actually, I didn't find satisfaction. All I found was grief. So then he turned to hedonism. Hedonism, pleasure-seeking. The idea, if it feels good, do it. And here's chapter 2, verses 1 through 26. The whole chapter, essentially. And he said, I, I decided I would investigate this. Maybe the answer is that if all I get is grief by learning more and taking on more responsibility, I'll just try pleasure. See if that works. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look at what he says. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. It's an interesting thing he says. No profit under the sun. He says, even from human perspective, the pursuit of pleasure is all there is. The pursuit is fun. When I get there, I feel like I've just gotten a double armload of wind. It's not very satisfying. Look at verse 22 of the same chapter. He says, For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Now he says that in the context of the work of pursuing pleasure. You get the idea that he's saying pursuing pleasure becomes just like working when you keep after it long enough. So then he moved to a philosophy I would call determinism. Chapter 3. This is the idea that says, what's the use? The whole world, the whole universe is like one big machine. Everything just happens and it's all predetermined and it seems like no matter how hard I try, I can't really change anything. Determinism. And he adopted that philosophy. And here's what he discovered. Verse 19 of chapter 3. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust all return to the dust. That's pessimistic, isn't it? Well, you see, under the sun, that would seem to be true. We have graveyards full. And we're just digging more graves. And it doesn't seem to be any different. So, what's the use? Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. And I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. For that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Under the sun, that's the proper perspective. The best thing you could do is enjoy whatever you do while you're doing it. Because under the sun, that's all there is. So then he moved one step worse than determinism. He came to fatalism. Determinism might say, what's the use trying to really get somewhere? I'll just enjoy myself as I go. Fatalism says, there is no use. And you really get depressed in chapter 4. Look how he begins. Then again, 
I looked at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power and they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. My, what an uplifting memory verse. But you know, that is right where people in our world are. Suicide now has become the second leading cause of teenage death right after accidental death. That's scary. I had to do a funeral for a 12-year-old Christian boy, a family in my church up in Idaho, who committed suicide. He was a straight-A student. He had all the right answers when you'd ask him about spiritual things. I really believe that he knew the Lord. He found out that his mom, a professing Christian, was having an affair. Um... His dad was sometimes a little bit harsh on him. And one day his parents got up and went to work and their schedule was such that with both of his parents working, there was about a half hour gap between when they left for work and when he left for school. And after they left, he wrote some notes. He went and got his dad's shotgun and killed himself in the living room. There's somebody who, even with Jesus Christ in their heart, got to the point of saying... There's no use. It just hurts too much to see what's going on. We've got to have an answer for that. And if we see our attitudes slipping down that road of maybe first a little bit of humanism, some wisdom and knowledge of man, and then some pleasure-seeking that leads us to a deterministic idea of the universe, and we wind up with this fatalistic idea, well, the logical conclusion under the sun is... If it hurts bad enough, you might as well just blow yourself away. Because under the sun, that's logical. Well, but he investigated that. Thank the Lord Solomon stopped short of following through on that line of thinking. And then he returned to, he turned to religiosity. Trying to be good enough. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 8 is one of the best sections of the book as far as having some good practical sense to it but but it still doesn't go quite far enough it still doesn't give us any assurance that there really is something worthwhile chapter 5 begins this way guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they're doing evil do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. You get the idea what the sacrifice of a fool is? Too many words. He's always got the answers. He's always talking when he ought to be being still and listening to God. Well, that's his introduction and there's some good practical sense there. Don't come hypocritically before God. Guard your steps as you come to the temple. Beware that you not uh, pretend to be something that you're not. Listen to God. There's some good practical advice there. But you go on through the next five verses and you find out he still doesn't come to the conclusion that in religious activities there is real satisfaction. That you really know what it's all about and why. 
Well, then he tried wealth. All the way from chapter 5, verse 9 to chapter 6, verse 12, you could title this the woeful wonders of wealth. Now Solomon had some wealth. He had access to access to great wealth. He had many, many possessions. He was a, a rich man. And maybe you could buy your way to happiness. Now it is true, with wealth comes more choices. Some of those choices are pleasant. But there's more to it than that. After achieving great wealth, you know what he felt he had? Double armload of wind. And really no satisfaction. Chapter 5, verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Now, he does not say that having money is evil. Money is a responsibility. Money is a stewardship. It's something that God entrusts to us. And God wants us to have a certain amount of wealth. He wants us to have enough to meet our needs. And in this country, He has chosen to bless the whole country and, and perhaps especially the Christians in this country with a great opportunity to invest money wisely in His kingdom. But if your love is money, if your pursuit is money, then no money is enough to satisfy you and no amount of money flowing in will be enough to give you satisfaction. It's vanity. There's a New Testament version of that. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. It'll get you into trouble if you're pursuing it. So then he moved to a section I would call morality. Maybe the most general section of the book, beginning at chapter 7, going all the way through chapter 11, verse 6. In religiosity, he was saying, uh, I'm trying to be good enough, and now in his moralizing days, he's sort of asking the question, God, am I good enough yet? We have some people who, in their Christian lives, live a kind of a moralizing lifestyle. The idea being, if I do well enough, if I perform in enough areas, God's going to like me. And if they fall a little short of the standards they've set for themselves, their mindset is, oh no, God doesn't like me now. That's sort of where, he's in, where he is, sort of a, a religious point system in moralizing from chapter 7 through chapter 11, verse 6. Let's see how he evaluates that. Look at chapter 8, starting at verse 14. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. When he was trying to be good, here's the conclusion he came to. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I work, there isn't justice under the sun. Not all the time. Because I know righteous people who suffer. And it bugs me. 
And they're victimized by the deeds of the wicked. And they're falsely accused. And, and they lose their fortunes when they didn't do anything wrong. It's not fair. And worse yet, I know evil men who prosper. And that really bothers me. So, after trying to be good and trying to work it out, you know what conclusion he came to? I might as well eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to have the best time I can now because he's coming back to fatalism again. What's the use? There doesn't seem to be any use in trying real hard to do good. In chapter 10, verse 1, still in the same section, Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. Make that your memory verse. Impress your friends. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. You know what he's saying there? I put together all of this wisdom. I do all of these honorable things. One dead fly can mess up the whole thing. You ever seen good plans destroyed? A good program destroyed, a good ministry destroyed by one foolish act, by one foolish person. And he's saying, what's the use? I try so hard, but it doesn't work out. Now, the cruelest thing anybody could ever do is study the book of Ecclesiastes up to this point and quit. You come to chapter 11, verse 7. And he starts to draw his conclusions. And this is the most important section of the book. Whether or not you ever experience or seriously investigate any of those other things, this is what Solomon would want you to know. Now, remember we've talked about vanity, emptiness, something elusive and fleeting like a vapor. And his conclusion is, vanity of vanity, all is just Emptiness. I grasp that it's not there. We've seen his phrase, under the sun, in the closed system of man's experience. Those are the conclusions that you come to. You'll notice, though, that Ecclesiastes does not necessarily, when it talks about things under the sun, speak of it from an atheistic viewpoint, as if there is no God. He mentions God several times in these early parts of the book. But he speaks of God sort of from the agnostic's viewpoint. Like God can't be known. Like he really um, isn't making his point. He really isn't telling us. Or we can't find out. But now we come to the idea of true spiritual wisdom. He's going to draw some conclusions. And it begins at chapter 11, verse 7. Look at it with me. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Now that's a contradiction to what he'd said when he was being fatalistic. The best thing to do is die. The best thing to do is never to have lived. Now he's saying, no, it's, it's good to wake up in the morning and see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them... In them all, and let them let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. So he's saying there, enjoy life now. Here's his, here's the beginning of his instruction. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes 
But here's some different advice. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Now he's starting to say things different. He's drawing some of what he has pulled out of all of those different areas he's investigating. He's saying, you know, it is good to enjoy everything you can right now. Let a child enjoy childhood. Rejoice in the days of youth. Enjoy young adulthood. Make the most of it. But live it in light of God. Know that He will bring you to judgment. So as you investigate things, investigate them with God looking over your shoulder and with Him as your partner to say, Lord, is, is this a good thing? Thank you, Lord, for letting me enjoy this. You know, a lot of Christians don't seem to catch on that in 1 Timothy 6, it does say that God has given us all things richly to what? Enjoy. We can be thankful that God has allowed us enjoyable days. So he says, when you have enjoyable times, make the most of them. Do all that you can. So the first thing he would tell us by way of a conclusion is this. In light of death, live your life fully and enjoy its best years as much as possible. There is some good theology in beer commercials as long as it goes, as far as it goes. There is kind of a Christian sense to go for the gusto. Because he's saying, enjoy what you can now. Embrace it with thanksgiving. Just remember, God is going to call you to judgment for the decisions that you make. The second thing he does develops the second part of that. Everything you do must be done in light of God and don't waste time getting started in inviting God into your world system to evaluate it with you. Solomon says to devote yourself to God. Listen to the way he says it. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. First of all, he says, remember God before you become cynical. If you go too long without dealing with God and His claim on your life, you'll turn cynical. He calls those the, the evil days. You say, I have no delight in them. You, you kind of get turned off to everything. So the point is, remember God now. And secondly, he says, remember God before you die. Verse 2 of chapter 12 begins a very vivid metaphorical picture of old age growing old, and natural death. I hate to say it, but we're all on that course. The last time I checked the statistics, I discovered that the mortality rate in the human race is holding steady right at 100%. Now, it's hard to feel it when you're in college, but it happens. I'm only college age times two. I still have this 18-year-old brain locked in a body to which it gives orders that the body can't command or can't obey. You know, my, my right knee is shot, my left wrist is shot, my right elbow is getting operated on next month. I've only got one appendage left. Anybody know sports for the left leg? It's starting to go. I've got eye problems. I'm getting the bald spot in back to catch up with the bald spot in front. 
How does Tony Campolo put it? They say that people who are bald in front are great thinkers, and people who are bald in back are great lovers, and people who are bald all over think they're great lovers. <laughs> I'm getting close. I'm starting to relate to the Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Listen to this description. Remember your Creator, verse 2, before the sun, the light, the moon, and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the days that the watchmen of the house tremble. What do you think of trembling with an old person? Remember when I was a young Christian, we had a fellow that served communion. And uh, we had the, the real glass cups, you know, in the trays. And this fellow had had a couple of minor strokes. Blessed saint of God. I remember him walking down the aisle with that tray and, his, and the watchmen were trembling, you know. And you just prayed, oh Lord, don't let him be in my row today. This might be the day that it goes. It's old age. The, the, the hands are, are, are trembling. And the mighty men stoop. The legs. The legs start to go. And the grinding ones stand idle. What would that be? The teeth. They stand still on the counter at night. Um, all of a sudden, it's not the way it used to be. And those who look through windows grow dim. Does that picture cataracts? I've watched my parents and my wife's parents go through developing cataracts and thankfully surgery now can remove that but the idea of your eyesight is is disappearing and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low um, shutting the doors to the street shuts out the noise it's like you can't hear anymore do you have parents or grandparents that you have to talk a little louder and you have to be looking right at them it's coming. And then the one and one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. The idea of arousing at the arising at the sound of a bird pictures sleeplessness. My mother-in-law can go to bed at night, fall asleep like a rock until about three o'clock in the morning, and then doing wide awake. I haven't had that problem yet, thank goodness. Um, the daughters of song are getting quiet. Your, your voice isn't what it used to be. And then he, uh, he goes on, Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and terrors of the road. One of the most traumatic things you will see is the time when you start to have to take care of your parents because they're afraid of things. Um, seeing, that, seeing that now, my mom is up around, she just turned 70. She's a spunky little lady. She's a... She's a joy. She doesn't know the Lord, but she's a neat lady. But now it's, well, you know, I, I just don't like to drive all that far. She's got a seven-year-old car with 18,000 miles on it. And she lives in Southern California. She's not just, just afraid to venture out. The fears start to, start to come in. The almond tree blossoms. I've been told that uh, the almond tree, when it blossoms, is white. White hair. And then picture this one. The grasshopper drags itself along. Can you picture an old, tired grasshopper? Would that be the saddest looking thing you've ever seen? With all those legs and just kind of dragging itself along. It's a picture of an old person moving slowly. Here's one. Uh, talk about a euphemism. And the caperberry is ineffective. The caperberry was an aphrodisiac. 
saying you just don't respond sexually the way you used to. There's another alternative, though. Remember God before those days set in so that you can enjoy what He gives you to do and serve Him faithfully. There's another possibility. You may not grow old and die. To be blunt, you might die today. How do you know a drunk isn't going to come across the center line and get you? I was only 33 years old when I was minding my own business on a motorcycle, big big road bike. I was a very good motorcycle rider and a reckless driver decided to pass several cars and then zip back in. He went out of control and came back across and hit me head on. I knew people don't survive head-on collisions of car versus motorcycle. He was going about 60 miles an hour. I was going about 30 miles an hour. It hit me head on. I'm one of the few people that can tell you what that feels like. And I came to the conclusion that uh, I was a dead man. As I was hurtling through the air in my lane, about an out cruising altitude of about eight or nine feet, <laughs> I had the most interesting thought. I thought, hmm, I'll be darned. It isn't... Well, you know, your mind goes fast, okay? I had two thoughts, actually. I sounded like a siren inside my helmet. I was screaming so loud. I'm a screamer when I get hurt. I was screaming so loud about how much it hurt. But then this thought struck me, I'll be darned, it isn't the car that kills you, it's the ground. And I, I realized one thing I was happy about. That didn't frighten me. I had a momentary thought about being really sad for my wife and my son. Didn't want to leave them behind. But I wasn't afraid to face that. I had that same experience in the 1971 earthquake here when I thought everything was coming down. I thought, it's the Lord, He's here. And then we just laid in bed and kept shaking and shaking, and I was real disappointed. And I, I hit the ground, and uh, after I hit, I knew that it wouldn't hurt like that in heaven, so I figured I must be alive. And then I thought, now I better crawl out of the road and be embarrassing to survive that and get run over by the school bus that's coming along behind me. So I dragged myself out of the road, and I really thought about my mortality. First thing I thought is, oh, darn, I'm going to miss the golf tournament Saturday. And then I thought, um, you know, I, I could be with the Lord now. He, he, has a, he has a reason for me here. The other alternative to growing old and dying is that you might be at the end of your life right now. And there's a, an interesting picture here of violent death. Verse 6. Remember him before the silver cord, cord is broken. That's probably the spine Remember him before the golden bowl is crushed. That's not a pretty picture, but that's the idea of the head being destroyed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Your circulatory system and your heart uh, failing you. So remember God. Now, if you know you need to remember him before you grow old and die, and you know you need to remember him because this might be the last day of your life, now don't get real pessimistic, you're probably going to survive even through finals and maybe even for next year. But that means remember Him now, right? Then the dust will return, verse 7, to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Now, under the sun, that's his theme again. But you've got to listen to the end of this book, verse 9 of chapter 12. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. So he didn't just learn it, he passed it on. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. 
The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. That's not vanity, my friends. That is taking the wisdom that God enables you to accumulate and passing it on to the next generation. That's one purpose in life. The Spirit is going to return to God. He is going to be our judge for all that we do. But listen to this now. The words of wise men are like goads. You know what the goad is? The goad is what prods the cattle to go in the right direction. And masters of these collections of words are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. A well-driven nail makes the building stay together. It's in the right place and it's straight. And it does the job. That's not vanity. That's spiritual productivity. To pass along to someone else like well-driven nails the wisdom that God gives to you. Now here's the verse that I put on a sign and put it over my desk in college. Ecclesiastes 12.12 But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. I took it out of context, but I like that verse in college and in graduate school. What's he saying? Beyond what? Beyond the wisdom that God gives, there is no end to books and the writing of many books and the reading of all these philosophies. But just be sure that you devote yourself to the most important thing. Now, if you're going to memorize anything out of the book of Ecclesiastes, make it these last two verses. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. That phrase is a little bit uh, ambiguous. It could mean that this applies to every man, or this is all that man is about, or this is the whole of man. This is the purpose of everything. Fear God and keep His commandments, because this is, that's really all that matters in verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Think back to his pessimism. When he said, I see the righteous suffering as the wicked ought to. And I see the wicked prospering. How do you live with that when you see it and you can't do anything about it and it's beyond you? And even though you wish you could change it, you can't. And even though people you love get hurt and even though you get hurt and falsely accused, how do you cope with that? You cope with that by knowing the jury's still out. God has not brought judgment yet. It will be brought to light and it will be brought to judgment. So what do we apply? Number one, rejoice where you are right now. The days of youth are fleeting and they're wonderful. Rejoice in them right now. And remember that the patterns that you are developing right now in your life will soon become very hard to change. I think college and perhaps graduate school are about the last opportunities you have to really set the direction of your character development. Oh yeah, with the grace of God, older people change too. But what you are like right now, if you're faithful now, you're establishing the pattern of faithfulness. If you're slothful now and saying, well, I'm going to get my act together tomorrow, it'll always be waiting until tomorrow. Rejoice now and remember God now. Secondly, filter every voice that calls to you through your relationship with God. 
If it's a catchy jingle and it sounds so good and it goes in so easy and remember it right away, it's easy to be swept away by it. But filter it through your relationship with God. Another application. Work on learning to aim your words and time your words in a wise and godly way that will reflect the work of the Lord in your life. Be a driver of well-placed nails. Be the kind of person who's not known for his many words. That's the mark of a fool. Be a person who's known for the wisdom of words. Chapter 12, verse 12, that theme verse of mine. Be warned that making of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to to the flesh. Keep a balance between this pursuit of spiritual things and the application of that in the rest of life. He didn't say, don't ever study anything except the Bible. But he says, excessive devotion to that is wearying. It becomes a weariness to the flesh. And and it's endless how far you can go. Know those things. Use those things. Exercise your, your spiritual influence in areas outside of church and Christian school. But keep it in balance. And finally, remember that when no one is watching, someone is watching. What are you like when you're alone? What are you like when there's no one around to hold you accountable, physically speaking, humanly speaking, under the sun? Did you catch that? Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, will be brought to judgment. If you just could get that verse and get it firmly implanted in your life, understand it, live it, and apply it, I would submit to you, you wouldn't have to worry about thinking through the rest of them. Because God is not only going to bring those things to judgment, but the other side of it is His great grace. He is with us to enable us to drive those well-driven nails. Would you pray with me?